This morning we will wrap up our Advent series. We have been looking at the greatest gift exchange, and we've spent most of our time here in Romans chapter 5. We'll be in Romans chapter 5 again this morning. Here's what we've seen so far in the greatest gift exchange, and what God has exchanged with us as sinners through the work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have exchanged enmity or war with God for peace. We've exchanged denial for access. We have access to God. We have exchanged despair for hope. Last Sunday, we looked at the fact that we have exchanged our sin for His righteousness. And this morning, we're going to wrap up this series by understanding and and considering that we are exchanging the ugly for the beautiful. It's interesting. Could you try again? My watch is talking to me. She said she could not understand me. Could I say it again? Did everybody understand me? Okay. I can say it again if I need to, because obviously my watch did not get it. Um. You know, it's interesting, sometimes something can be ugly and it can also be beautiful. And and that that seems like a contradiction, but how many of you have ever seen a food that when you first saw it, it looked disgusting to you? Like, oh, what is that? And then you taste it and you're like, oh my goodness, that is amazing. You ever had that experience? Something that looks disgusting but actually tastes amazing. If you've ever, ladies, if you've ever given birth to a child, husbands, if you've ever been there, to see a child be born, this thing that has been squeezed through tiny spaces that comes out bloody and smeared and with a wrinkly skin and a misshaped head that you might say, oh, that is not the prettiest thing. But at the same time, you would say it is the most beautiful thing that you could ever lay eyes upon as a parent, right? In the text this morning, Paul is going to present to us realities. That one side of the coin, you're going to say, oh, that is ugly and disgusting. And you're going to flip that coin over and you're going to say, this is the most beautiful truths that I could find in all of the scriptures. We're going to read Romans chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 5 and we're going to read down through verse 11 as we simply see Paul describe to us The ugly that is exchanged for the beautiful. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received 
reconciliation. We've been looking over the past few weeks, we've walked ourselves through the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5, looking at some of these marvelous things which the apostle reveals to us that we have received as we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This morning, I just want to wrap this up by allowing the apostle Paul to show us the beauty of the gospel. The first thing I want us to consider this morning, we're going to look at three things. The first is this, the death of Christ. We jump right off into the ugly as we consider the ugly for the beautiful. And Paul starts off with the ugly. Notice in verse 6, Paul describes the sinner. Paul, Paul describes humanity. And if you're a believer, this is no longer you. But I do want you to understand this used to be you. And if you're not a believer, this is you. Verse 6, Paul describes the unbeliever, the sinner, as ungodly. Verse 8, he describes us as sinners. Verse 10 describes us as enemies of God. It's, it's sad to me, but it is a reality that I cannot deny. If you ask people if you are worthy of Jesus dying to save you, most people, even the majority, I'm afraid, of Christians would say, yes, I am worthy of Jesus coming to this earth, going to a cross, dying the death. I was worth that. In fact, I would argue that many of the Christian songs that are on the radio today present that bad information. That I am worthy of what Jesus did on the cross. Friends, let me tell you, Paul's gonna, he's going to rebuke you. No, you were not. He's going to present you as what we are, and that is ungodly, and we all remember the word the, the uh, UN in front of a word means the opposite, right? We are not godly. We were the opposite of godly. We are sinners. Paul says we are enemies of God. This is the ugly of this text. Ungodly sinners, haters of God. Helpless and powerless, unable to free ourselves from our predicament. Deceived by Satan, headed for hell, stained by iniquity. And Christ died for us. If you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 5, flip back a page or two to Romans chapter 3, just so we feel the fullness of this reality. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 and following, Paul says this, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, listen to me. This is Paul presenting the reality. This is who you are if you're not in Christ. This is who you used to be if you are in Christ. I, I want to challenge you. I want, you. I want to do a little mind exercise with you. I, I want you just to stop right now, and I want you to begin in your mind... I want you to conjure up the most vile, wicked 
person you could imagine in your head. I want you to, just, I want you to picture who that would be to you. you. You say, if I could picture the most vile, evil, wicked person that has ever lived, this is who it would be. I mean, I want you to picture the, the rapist, the, the pedophile, the abuser. I, I want you to picture people like Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler. I, I want you to imagine that kind of person. And I'm going to give you a second. You got that person in your head? Have, have you conjured them up? Now, I want to I ask you this question. I want, to, I want to, um, you to imagine you sending your child. I want you to imagine you sending your son or your daughter, that wicked, evil person that you just conjured up in your head, you are going to be given the option to send your son or your daughter to die in their place so that that person could be set free. I'd ask you this question. How many of you would say, I'll do it? None of us would do that. We, we all say that's, that's insanity. That is absolute lunacy. But here's what I want you to understand. That is exactly what God has done for you and for me. You see, we, we, are, we are bent. We lean toward being very lenient on ourselves. We'll, we'll say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. I, I'm probably good enough to deserve Jesus to come and die on my behalf. But Paul would rebuke you. He would say, no, you're not. Here's how Paul, the apostle, describes sinners. Ungodly sinners and enemies of God. I've shared the gospel with many people, and, and here's, here's my preferred way to, to share the gospel. I begin by asking somebody this question. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? And if, you're, if you are um, uh, familiar with Ray Comfort, it, I've taken it from Ray Comfort. And Ray Comfort will ask you, are you a good person? Would you consider yourself to be a good person? I've asked that question to probably hundreds of people, and I've never once had a person say, nope, I'm pretty rotten. Every person I've asked that question to, I say, would you consider yourself to be a good person? They say, well, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And then I ask them this, could we, could we look at the Bible to see if you indeed are a good person or not? We're bent toward thinking we are good. You remember the man who came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember the very th first thing Jesus said to that man? He said to him, why do you call me good? There is one who is good, and it's who? It's God. You see, Jesus is correcting him from the very beginning. You think you're good, and I'm going to correct you. There's one that is good, and one only that is good, and it is, it is Christ. It is God. And if God, if Jesus is right, there's only one who is good and it is God, what does that mean for you and me? We're not good. And that is the ugly of this text. Paul is presenting to us the reality that we are ungodly, we are sinners, we set ourselves as enemies of God, haters of God.
And what you and I would not do in a million years to send my child to save, imagine, you, you remember, I think it was Saddam Hussein, when they, they captured him and then they executed him, is that right? Anybody remember history better than I do? I mean, if the White House called you up and said, we're about to execute Saddam Hussein for all his atrocities, but we're going to give you an option. Would you send your son or your daughter? We will execute them in his place and set him free. There's not a one of us who say, yep, they're on their way. Well, depending on the day in which our child is behaving, right? <laughs> Under more circumstances, most of us would say, there's no way. And we understand why. That man is vile, he's wicked, he's evil, he deserves to die. But here's what Paul wants you to understand. So are we. We're enemies of God, and God did the unthinkable. He actually sent his son to die in your place. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, listen, Christ died for godly people. Is that what it says? No, he says Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 10, but God shows his love or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies at war with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I am quite confident that there is no way in any song or any sermon or any words that a mere human could offer to God that we could capture the love and the grace and the mercy in which he has demonstrated to us. Verse 7, Paul says it best, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Paul's saying there's a chance someone might lay down their life. I don't know how many of you here would say there's a really good, honorable person who does good things that needs saved. I'll send my son, my daughter to die in their place. Paul says it's a possibility. Maybe somebody would do that. That's not who Jesus laid down his life to save. Jesus laid down his life to save a human a humanity that actually deserves the wrath of God. I mean, think about Saul of Tarsus. We, we all know and we, we love the story of, of Saul headed down that Damascus road and him having this conversion. But Jesus died before that, right? Was Saul of Tarsus a lover of God? Did, did he love Jesus? Did he love his way? No, he hated Christ. He hated these people who followed Jesus. Yet Christ laid down his life to save him. This justification that Paul is telling us about showcases the love of God. Not our love for God, his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This brings us to a second point, and that is this, the gift of God. The death of Christ, secondly, the gift of God. Verse 5, Paul says, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We see the truth of the sinful state of man. Paul makes it clear that, that the godly has died for the ungodly. Christ has died for sinners. Emmanuel, God in flesh, goes to a cross and dies for sinners. 
The gospel is heard by the sinner. The gospel is believed by the sinner. This, this new life, this new creation occurs. Now Paul says God goes one step further. He doesn't just save us. He sends his Holy Spirit to live in us, to take up residence in us. I, I got to thinking about this. Imagine, again, picture that person in your head, the most vile, wicked, evil person that you, you conjured up just a moment ago. Imagine you actually did. That, that person is, has, has been found guilty. They're about to be punished by death for their, their atrocities. Imagine the offer is given to you. Hey, if you'll send your child, your son, your daughter, we, we will execute them and we'll let this man, this woman that's vile and evil and wicked and done all these things, we'll let them go free. Imagine you actually did that. You sent your child and they were executed in the place of this person and they were set free. How would you feel toward that individual? Adolf Hitler is alive. He's killed millions of Jews. And you're given the option, hey, we'll kill your son or daughter and let him go. You, in a moment of insanity, allow them to murder your child to punish his sins. And they set Adolf Hitler free. How do you now view Adolf Hitler? Do you ever want to see a man or a woman like that again? I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to see that face again. I don't ever want to hear that name again. I know his wickedness. I know his evil. And on top of that, all the things he's done, now my child is done so that you can be set free. I'd want that person exiled to an island in the middle of nowhere to never hear or see from them again. Yet, that's exactly what Christ has done, right? We are enemies of God. We are, we are sinners. We are ungodly. Jesus comes. He puts on flesh. He dies in our place. And I think, okay, Jesus died unjustly to save me from my sins. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to be punished. Yet he took my place. He rises from the dead. And I can just, I can just imagine God saying, okay, I saved you, but I don't want to see you again. I know what it cost my son to save you from your sins. He doesn't put us off in a corner somewhere. He doesn't say to those who would believe upon his son, I'm going to let you into my kingdom, but just barely. He doesn't save us and put us off in a corner somewhere. No, he says to those who would believe, he adopts you into his family as his son or his daughter. He says to those who would come to Jesus Christ by faith, you are adopted into his family and made heirs of everything that is his. Paul says it gets even better than that. Not only does he save us and not stick us off in a corner somewhere, he sent his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to actually live within us, to dwell within us. Can you think of an, a, a more intimate relationship than that? The Spirit of God, God himself living in the believer? While you and I would say, oh, I don't ever want to see that person again, God says, I want intimacy with you that cannot be experienced in any other relationship. You've got your Bible still open, flip over to Romans chapter 8. 
verses 8 and 9, Paul says this. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, those who are sinners, those who are ungodly, those who are sinners, those who are enemies of God, not resting in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They do not have the ability to please God. You, however, speaking to the Christians in Rome, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. This intimacy, this gift of God that He saves us, He makes us sons and daughters, He makes us heirs, and He sends the Spirit to dwell within us. John 14, verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever. God sent His Son to die for wicked and corrupt sinners. Then He sent His Spirit to dwell in those who comprise the body, the bride of Jesus Christ. Also notice in verse 5, it says, The love of God has been poured out through the Holy Spirit. God God doesn't just take like a, a thimble of His love and kind of just splash it on us. Paul says His love has been poured out in the Greek It literally means to gush out, to run out greedily, to spill forth. Paul is saying if you are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the love of God has been poured out upon you abundantly through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The floodgates have opened. It's like the... the, the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? The son essentially spits in his father's face. Not, not literally, but figuratively. He goes to his father. It would be like me if, if I had money saved up. It would be like my son coming to me and saying, Dad, I really don't care about you. I really don't want a relationship with you. All I want is my inheritance. Give me my money. When, when do you typically inherit money from your parents? When they die, right? They leave it to you. This son comes and says, I don't care about you. I really don't want anything to do with you. Just give me my inheritance. The father complies. He gives him the inheritance and he goes off and he lives a sinful, wicked life, right? He blows all his money. He's, he's got nothing. A famine happens. He's eating pig food. And he comes to his senses and he says, my father has many people working for him. I've got an idea. I'll go home and I'll just ask dad if I can be one of his hired hands. When he's coming home, what's dad doing? The Bible says he's been watching for his son. He's like a shepherd and he's just looking, he's watching. And he looks out one day and he sees his wayward son coming home. And what does he do? He does something a Jewish man in that time would not do. He, he raises up his garment a little bit and he takes off like Usain Bolt across the ground toward his son. And he gets to his son and he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't let him have it. He embraces his son. He prepares a feast for his son. And he says, my son who was lost has come home. He's been found. 
This is the picture of what Paul is is painting for you and for me as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate Advent. I I hope and pray you understand that God is not in the business of just kind of casually, barely saving sinners. No, he says, I save you completely and I bring you as close as I can and I grant you my kingdom and I make you heirs of everything that is mine. You are my sons and you are my daughters and I desire for you to cry out daddy as he cries out to us son daughter the intimacy and the love the gift of God toward those who would believe there's one final point I want us to think about and that is the security in Christ And here is where the ugly and the beauty, to me, is so wonderfully exposed. Look again at verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more. Let me just read that the way John reads that. I read the first part of the verse and and I just imagine sitting at the Apostle Paul's feet and he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Wicked, sinful, evil John reconciled to holy, righteous God by the death of his son. Does it get any better than that? And then Paul says, much more. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. How does it get much more? How does it get better than that? He says much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Friends, here's the reality. You you and I, I hope you can agree with this, we are sinners. I hope you can agree with this, that we are not worthy of being saved. Jesus didn't come and he didn't Die on a cross because you're worthy and you're good. He died on a cross to save you for his glory. I I hope you understand this. If you're a believer this morning, I hope you understand that the reason he has saved you, the reason he has offered you grace, that you can be reconciled to him by faith, is that for all of eternity, the God who created all things could declare to everything While you deserved the wrath of of God, while you deserved hell, while you deserved judgment, my glory is on display in that I saved sinners. I showed them mercy and grace and forgiveness. Paul says, while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. And friends, it's not your church membership It's not your baptism, it's not your morality, it's not your goodness, it's not your teaching, it's not your your church attendance or your ministry or your building. Verse 9, the only hope, the only hope any of us has this morning to say, how can I be certain that I would enter the kingdom of God for eternity? Paul answers the question, verse 9, by his blood, by his death, we are reconciled to the Father. 
That is, by Jesus' death, we are accepted back into a right relationship with the Father through the death and resurrection of the Son. Then Paul says, if, if, if that's not good enough news for you, if that doesn't just stop and, and amaze you and, and cause you to marvel, Paul says, much more. We shall be saved by his life. And, and here's what Paul means by that. When Paul says much more, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. This is a common technique of, of the biblical authors. The lesser part is that by Jesus' death, we are reconciled to God. The war is over. The white flag is, is flown. The lesser part, if you could call it lesser, is that you and I as sinners, as ungodly, as enemies of God, are justified. We are pronounced sinless. We are pronounced forgiven. How? By the death and the shed blood of God the Son. And Paul says there's a greater part. We are saved by his life. And here's the point. Christ dying justifies us. Christ living keeps you saved. In the Greek, when Paul says we are reconciled, it is in the verb form that indicates a, a realized, finished event. So here's what this means. In the form in which Paul writes this sentence here, if you are here this morning and you would say, I recognize I am a sinner by faith. I know there is no other way. I know that I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and I believe, I trust him. I take my soul and I entrust it to the care of Jesus. By faith, he is my savior. Paul says that work finished. When Christ died and he rose from the grave and he offers to you the gift of salvation to those who believe, you can say that's done. That's justification. The judge is pounding the gavel. You are for given as a sinner you can say i am as holy and righteous as god because i possess the righteousness of jesus christ but paul says uh, if that's great to you and it should be great to you there's even a better aspect to this glorious gospel the phrase that we translate we shall be saved by his life it's in a different form in the greek and I know this will mean nothing to you, so I'll try to explain it to you. But it's in the future passive indicative form, which says this. This is describing a certain action that is certain to occur that's in the future, and you're not the cause of it. Here's what Paul's saying. This gospel is certain in the past. If you believe, Paul says, your salvation is certain because you rest in what Christ has accomplished. But see, here's where a lot of Christians struggle. Because they get that part. Okay, so I understand that I'm saved. I'm, I'm reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. I believe. They just don't get the other part. They spend the rest of their life on this earth wondering, have I done enough to keep my salvation? Have I been good enough? Jesus saved me by faith, but have I been good enough to keep my salvation? And Paul says, if that's how you're thinking, you don't understand the fullness of the gospel. 
Paul says, if that's how you're thinking, you need to take your eyes off yourself and, and fix them on Jesus Christ. Because he says the finished work of justification by his death and resurrection, he says there's something even greater, and that is this, that his living, by his death and resurrection, you're justified. By his living today. How many of you realize we don't worship a dead Savior? How many of you understand that while we celebrate Christmas, we also celebrate Easter, which signifies what? He did. He, he died, right? But on the third day, he rose from the grave, right? And he ascended back to the Father. The writer of Hebrews says we have a high priest who intercedes when? Always. Continually. So Paul says there's this finished certain thing in the past. Your justification your reconciliation to the Father through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but even much more, Paul says, there's this certain future passive thing that as Christ lives and he intercedes on your behalf, he will bring to completion the work that he began. If you struggle with, am I saved for eternity? Can I lose this salvation? I think the Apostle Paul would rebuke you and say, stop looking at yourself. There's a lot of Christians who are looking at themselves like, am I doing enough? Am I working hard enough? And Paul would say, no, 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 no. Look to Christ. Because what he began, he will bring to completion. And friends, listen. If you are a new creation in Christ, if, if the Spirit of God dwells within you, if you've truly been born of the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ is going to bring you to completion. And that's the promise he's making here. Let me conclude as we look at this text and we see the ugly, we are sinners, enemies of God, deserving, whether you like it or not, to be punished by a holy, righteous God. We see the beautiful that Jesus took our place. He took our guilt and God the Father punished God the Son in our place. And here's what we possess. If you have been born again, if you are a new creation, if you this morning would say, I trust, I believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you have become immune, if you will, protected, exempt from the wrath of God. The believer is released from the eternal punishment of God. Why? Because the precious blood of Jesus has made us into a new creation. Positionally, we have been pronounced pure and spotless and holy as we possess the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope and I pray as we wrap up this Advent season, I hope and I pray you understand and realize and live out the promises of God putting on flesh. A baby born in a manger the Son of Man, the Son of God, who would live on this earth a perfect and sinless life, who would go to a cross, not deserving punishment, not deserving death, but standing in our place would die our death and take the wrath of the Father in your place, who would rise from the dead and commission the glorious gospel to be proclaimed until he returns.
And if you're here this morning and you would say, I am a believer, I hope and I pray that you understand these realities of what you possess in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm not a believer. If you're here this morning and you would say, I, I reject this message. I, I plead with you. God has entrusted, we saw it last week, he has entrusted to us the, the message of reconciliation. The Christ who knew no sin was made sin. Our sins placed upon him so that you and I could be made righteous. That you would call out to Jesus. By faith you would trust him as your savior. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer as we um, prepare ourselves for our final song of worship this morning. I, I think it's vitally important that you understand that uh, being a Christian is not something to do with your family. Being a Christian is not something to do with um, this church. Being a Christian is not something to do with a denomination. Being a Christian is somebody individually who understands their state and understands what Christ has done and looks to him by faith. And I pray that you are resting in him this morning. Let's close in a word of prayer and thank him and praise him for this glorious gospel. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity to read this text this morning and to be reminded of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, that you, Jesus, would die so that ungodly, God-hating enemies could be reconciled to you. Jesus, we thank you for your life. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. And God, I praise you for those who are here this morning who are trusting, resting in the finished work of Christ this gracious, amazing gift. Father, if there would be any here this morning that do not know you as Savior and as Lord, God, I pray that you'd grant them eyes to see. I pray that you'd grant them a heart that was soft and circumcised. Ears that would hear the call of the gospel and a heart that would cry out and believe and receive Jesus as Savior. We say it often that Christ Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and there is no way to you but through him. Father, we may, may we live for your glory, abiding in Jesus. God, we love you. We thank you for this Advent season, the time to be reminded of the birth of Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for this church, and I pray that you would continue to move and work in the lives, in the marriages, in the homes, that you would be glorified, that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We love you, God. We praise you. We ask all this in Christ's name.